Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. Just a quick heads up that today's episode contains audio of when George Floyd was arrested that some listeners may find disturbing. The jury in the George Floyd murder trial has handed down their verdict. Guilty. 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 After three weeks of testimony from 45 witnesses, other police officers, bystanders and experts, and then 10 hours of deliberation, the jury found former police officer Derek Chauvin guilty on two counts of murder and one of manslaughter. So what happens now? Does this verdict heal any of the pain felt by the black community in America? Does the conviction of one officer impact the rest of the country's police force in their treatment of anyone who isn't white? Today, we find out the impact of one guilty officer. When former police officer Derek Chauvin kneeled on the neck of African-American man George Floyd on a street in Minneapolis in May last year, no one could predict the outpouring of pain, grief and anger that would see women and men, black, white and brown, take to the streets across the world, screaming to be heard. For those in power and with privilege to know that black lives matter too. For the past three weeks, a 12-member jury made up of six white people and six people of colour have sat in court, off-camera to protect their identities, listening to a parade of witnesses giving testimony into what went down on that day in May. They heard how Floyd was accused of using a fake $20 note to buy cigarettes. They heard how he seemed to be affected by drugs. They heard how he seemed confused when confronted over it, and then resisted arrest when police arrived. They were told of George Floyd's many medical conditions, including problems with his heart and his positive COVID-19 test. They watched hours of video footage, the prosecution thanking teenager Darnella Fraser, who was the one who started filming the scene as it unfolded. They heard from the defence, who explained that this situation was one police have to deal with every day, and it's not an easy job. The 9 minutes and 29 seconds ignores the previous 16 minutes and 59 seconds. This was an authorised use of force, as unattractive as it may be. And this is reasonable doubt. These are officers doing their job in a highly stressful situation. They heard from the prosecution about how Officer Chauvin ignored George Floyd's pleas. George Floyd's final words on May 25. 2020 were, please, I can't breathe. He said those words to the defendant. He asked for help with his very last breath. In downtown Minneapolis during the trial, there were double rows of steel fencing with razor wire surrounding the local courthouse. 
businesses were boarded up and the National Guard stood at the ready in case violence escalated when the verdict came in. As the jury announced that they'd come to an agreement, President Joe Biden said he prayed that they'd made the right decision. He'd been in contact with George Floyd's family, his brother saying the president could relate to them on a very personal level. He knows how it is to lose a family member, and he knows the process of what we're going through, so he was just letting us know that he was praying for us and hoping that everything would come out to be okay. This case seemed like so much more than just one police officer's conduct. For people across the country, it was a reflection of the treatment of all black people in the US, of how those who are supposed to protect and serve don't always treat people of colour as humans, as citizens of the same country. It wasn't just a matter for George Floyd's friends and family or the police force. This was personal for everyone. This has affected every single one of us that not only lives here, but across our nation, across our world. And we came here because we need justice and we deserve justice and we need something to change. What do you expect to happen next after this verdict? I know there's, and I'm not threatening when I say this, but I know there's going to be a problem if this verdict doesn't go the right way. And I'm praying that this time we get to see the justice that we're asking for. That's Minneapolis local Brie Graham, who joined protesters in the city the day of the verdict, speaking to NBC. Protests have been happening through the weeks of testimony and they've been peaceful. On Tuesday afternoon local time, as news started to filter through that the jury had come to a unanimous decision, the streets emptied out as people who work in the area, worried about more violent protests like they saw back in May, left work early and headed home. Not long after, people started to gather in a nearby park to be together as the verdict was handed down. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. As to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. As to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. Derek Chauvin, who's shown no remorse during the trial, was wearing a mask as his fate was sealed. But you could clearly see the look of sheer panic in his eyes as they darted around the room, trying to make sense of what he'd just heard. The response from those outside was one of relief and celebration, tears and shouts of joy. We always have doubts and this was definitive and this was solidified and we finally got the justice that we needed. It finally feels like the smoke has cleared just a tiny bit enough just to take a deep breath, you know? While the celebrations continue, we know that one verdict in one case of a black man being killed by one police officer won't change everything that is broken about the systems in place in the US. But does it heal some of the pain? DeRay McKesson is a civil rights activist, a leading voice in the Black Lives Matter movement and a co-founder of Campaign Zero, a movement to end police violence in America. DeRay, do you think you can really accurately describe how you felt when you heard the words guilty come from the judge? Yeah, in so many ways, this is deja vu, right? We've been here before. We were here with Walter Scott. We were here with Freddie Gray, Mike Brown, Sandra Bland. Like, we've been in these moments where there's anticipation about a verdict. Sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't. But what happens every time is that there's like this idea that this will be the time that transformation comes. And I'm reminded that that'll only happen if we have legislators who step up and bring it about. That, you know, you think about 2020, the police killed more people in 2020 than every year of data we have, except for 2018. And as of today, the police have killed 319 people. There have only been three days in 2021 where the police have not killed somebody. So there's a lot of work to do. 
Does it really ram that point home when literally hours after that verdict is handed down, we hear about another young black girl being shot dead in Ohio? Yeah, it is relentless. So the question is not, you know, in 2014, the protesters, we were convincing people that there was a problem. We were like, hey, not just Ferguson, not just Baltimore. This is in your neighborhood. We're not doing that anymore. People get that there's a problem. What we don't have is a political will to do something about it. People in Congress should be demanding that the Biden administration rein in the federal agencies as a model. People in cities like mayors, governors should be reigning in the police. They could do that without legislation, without a hearing, without a commission. This isn't a matter of what is possible. It's a matter of where's the will. So there is a lot of discussion about this particular case being a real major turning point for the Black Lives Matter movement. Do you think that that is actually the case or do you think this is just the beginning of a hell of a lot more work to be done? I think it is a continuation of work to be done. This is not victory. Today is one good verdict. Remember that the highest number of convictions ever for police officers who kill in a given year is 11. He is only the seventh officer for as long as we have data out of 15,000 cases charged with murder. So this is the outlier. This is not the norm. And is this a good moment? Yes. But is this victory or is this like a sea change? It is not. The police want you to believe that this is some turning point because then you'll just become complacent, but it is not. And I'll tell you, we did a lot of work this past year on legislatures, and the police have never been more organized. They are ready. They are quiet in these moments, but they are not quiet in the ears of legislators. And you look at the legislation. Many states have criminalized protests in the past year. Missouri is about to pass a bill enhancing protections for the police. On the flip side, you do get a Maryland. Maryland has one of the best bills around police reform in the U.S. You get a New Jersey, the best use of force policies in the U.S. So there is some hope, but uh, it is a mixed bag. So it's abundantly clear that one guilty verdict isn't going to change a broken system right now. But where does it go in affecting the psyche of those communities who are affected by police violence. Does this start the healing process at all, you think? Not healing, but I do think that this case was an invitation for so many people to think about how the system is just structurally flawed, right? There are a lot of people for whom seeing is believing that they didn't believe us when we said this. They saw that video, though, nine minutes, and they were like, okay, clearly this is wrong. And it made them start to think about and ask questions about policing in ways that they otherwise might not have. And if this was the thing that woke them up, then I'm happy they are awake. But just understanding the problem isn't enough. And I think there are a lot of people who really do believe that a change in narrative is a change in outcomes. And 2020 is a case study that that's not true. You know, we won the media in 2020. We did. This conversation was everywhere. I remember in 2014, we were begging people to talk about this. 2020, everybody talked about it. And what happened? The police killed more people in 2020, not less. Like a change in outcomes is not necessarily following a change in narrative. So, Dre, where does it go from here? I know we need political change. We need to change the system itself. Is that change starting to happen or does it need to start from the beginning? I think that there's some concrete things, right? We know that the power of police unions is great. We know that they stand in the way of any transformational change. So we're working on that. One of the biggest structural changes that's happened is use of force. So there have been amazing changes to use of force policies across the country. There have been some police department budgets that have been cut. Not enough, but there have been some. And that is good. And then we think about Breonna Taylor, no knocks. Maryland is the most aggressive state that has restricted the use of no knocks in the country. And we need that change to spread to more places. Now, we here in Australia are not immune to the same systems that seem to be broken in the U.S., What message do you have for people here in Australia 
who are trying to get the same kind of momentum and movement behind the support of the lives of black people here in this country, what message would you have for them? I'd say don't be discouraged. Remember that we are often telling a story about a world that we've never seen, but we know it's possible. And that's actually just hard work. In 2014, we were convincing people there's a problem. In 2020, we are trying to get people to do something about it because they have acknowledged that something is wrong. But I'd say keep the fight and we can win in this lifetime. I don't think that I'm fighting for something 300 years away. I think that we can win in this lifetime. This verdict doesn't undo the grief the families of those people who've been killed by police in America are feeling. It doesn't bring back George Floyd or Dante Wright or Breonna Taylor. It won't immediately stop the unequal treatment that people of colour receive from those in authority. But for many across the world, this verdict is a step in the right direction. In order to deliver real change and reform, we can and we must do more to reduce the likelihood that tragedies like this will ever happen and occur again. To ensure the black and brown people, or anyone, so they don't fear the interactions with law enforcement. And this takes acknowledging and confronting head-on systemic racism and the racial disparities that exist in policing and in our criminal justice system more broadly. Derek Chauvin will be sentenced in around three weeks' time, with some of his charges attracting a maximum 40-year prison term. But as a first offender, it's unlikely he'll serve that amount of time behind bars. So today, we leave you with this from Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell in the closing arguments of George Floyd's murder trial. You were told that Mr. Floyd died because his heart was too big. And now, having seen all the evidence, having heard all the evidence, you know the truth. And the truth of the matter is that the reason George Floyd is dead is because Mr. Chauvin's heart was too small. That's the Quickie for today. This episode was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and the Quickie's executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane. Audio production by Ian Camilleri. And if you want access to exclusive Mamma Mia content, including our new podcast, Extraordinary Stories Magazine Queens, with guests like Ida Buttrose, Nini King, and our own Mia Friedman, make sure you sign up today at mamamia.com.au forward slash M+. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.